Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Athletes with trouble breathing are nothing new. Obviously, athletes may get winded with deconditioning or just a really hard workout, but what about when it isn't expected? Commonly, we think of asthma, and as an asthmatic myself since college, it's near and dear of a problem to me. But not all things that may seem like asthma are truly asthma. Today on the podcast, we will discuss some things to consider when evaluating an athlete with concerns of being short of breath or with trouble breathing with exercise. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Ray Davis. Dr. Davis is a professor of clinical pediatrics in the Division of Allergy, Immunology, and Pulmonary Medicine at Washington University School of Medicine and has been in private practice with allergy consultants in St. Louis for 38 years. He received his medical degree from the University of Louisville and completed his pediatric residency from Washington University and completed his allergy and immunology fellowship at the National Jewish Hospital. Over the past 30 years, he has facilitated over 100 CME sessions on asthma, food allergies, anaphylaxis, and rhinitis nationally. He is a champion of the problem-based learning or PBL form of learning. Welcome to the podcast, Ray. Thank you so much, Mark, for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm excited to do this. We've talked about this before. We've done this particular topic at my uh, sports medicine conference that I put on. But I think before we get into just talking about things on this specific topic, I think it'd be helpful to our listeners just talking about you're a big believer in problem-based learning. I think it's something we we do a lot during our training for residency, probably medical school, but then we kind of lose that when we go out into our careers because most of the CME sessions are, you know, straight up lectures, typical didactic learning there with little interaction, except for maybe just the Q&A sessions where, you know, as I know, at a lot of those conferences, it's just the person who wants to get up there and hear themselves talk and, and put a statement rather than truly asking a question of the lecturer. But, you know, it's challenging the way most conferences are run, but it's not impossible to do. And it also requires a little bit more active learning process than passive. So talk to our listeners a little bit about problem-based learning and if you have any resources for anyone that may be interested in trying to add more PBL to their educational format. So I learned how to facilitate problem-based learning sessions or seminars with doctors and nurse practitioners some 30 years ago. And I really had an epiphany and I really realized that in med school, all my med school at the time in the 70s was didactic and was very boring and passive learning and rote memorization and hard to apply toward real cases by the time you got out of the first two years of med school and were actually seeing patients. But when I started seeing patients, I could really go back to the literature. I could read the textbook and say, okay, now I understand about this patient and how the underlying pathophysiology works. So learning in context to a case, I think in prints better for doctors and enables us to have recall and not have rote memorization, but actually have these synapses occur when you you see a patient visually or you discuss a patient in a problem-based learning session. So most of the medical schools have embraced what Harvard and McMaster started some 50 years ago. And now, as you said, it's in all the undergraduate medical education. It's in many nursing schools and dental schools and even in law schools, case-based learning. But using it in continuing medical education, you're right, has not been really embraced, although I've helped do it in the allergy, immunology, pulmonary field nationally and regionally. 
and it's had a really good uptake. The concept, for those who don't understand, is that one presents a case slowly and progressively from the history of the present illness to the past medical history to the physical exam to allowing the group to sort through the case and interactively discuss and argue their points of view about where they stand and how they would see this patient if they actually saw the patient in their office at nine o'clock on Monday morning. And then they come to some conclusions about what their impressions are and what tests they would run. And then the facilitator gives them some data, some test results to interpret. And again, you slowly interpret each slide or each page and there's total feedback and interaction engaging the audience to think through a real case so it does imprint on them. And then at the end, after you get to the point where they come up with conclusions of their impressions and then what they would actually do, we try to focus them on a shared decision-making discussion, which is a new concept, probably the last five to eight years, shared decision-making has become popular. And we try to have the group do a shared decision-making discussion with the patient, and I role play as though I'm the patient quite often in a group of doctors, and have them discuss what the pros and cons and the risks and benefits are of options for therapy, if there are multiple options for therapy. It is real role playing. It is the difference from a didactic, boring, traditional CME lecture, which often CME has five or six didactic lectures, and that's a university CME for a morning. This enables the groups to engage. And then typically the model that I've chosen is a brief mini lecture is done by the facilitator at the end to bring the group up to practice parameters and practice guidelines about the case without embarrassing anybody about kind of missing the boat on maybe part of their diagnosis or their treatment, but actually telling the group, this is the way the practice parameters say you should look at and treat this case. So anyway, I've really been, uh, as you said, a champion and a true believer in problem-based learning matched with a brief didactic lecture at the end. That brings me back 20 years. This is an exact description of how I used to run my pediatric chief resident conferences. It was Mm -hmm. kind of our pattern that we always did. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I just carried it on where we would talk about a case, you know, a common case, oftentimes, hopefully one that was in the outpatient setting rather than our more complicated inpatient, although we would do some inpatient. We do the differential, put up the labs, all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. This is when I used to use PowerPoint for links. I would have it like almost like a little choose your own adventure kind of talk where I could click on something. If they wanted the CBC, I could click to the CBC Mm -hmm. and show the results and go back and forth. I love doing that way as a teaching format, as a chief resident, but you're right. I mean, we just, it's something that we just get away from, but I do stress that so much with the residents that come through my clinic is that, you know, we don't want them just generically reading for, for me, as example, just sports medicine topics. It's not going to stick to just go through and read about knee pain. But, you know, when we see that patient in the office and we're talking about it and we go through it, then read about that condition when you go home later. And then I think that's going to be something that sticks later. So, And and when we do these, we often hear feedback that, wow, I I picked up some pearls that I really didn't think about that one of our colleagues brought up about this case. And this is really going to help me and help my patients. So the interaction between groups of doctors and healthcare professionals, nurse practitioners is beneficial for everybody. And I've always said... A traditional didactic lecture is the cure for insomnia. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) absolutely. I I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Now, now, again, if you have a super dynamic speaker, that may change things, but (laughs) those are few and far between. So (laughs) 
So, you know, I know we can't do a true PBL case with just the two of us, but I think we can kind of try and do something. We'll present a case scenario for our listeners so we can get them in kind of the mood, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then we'll kind of get into a discussion of this particular topic. So I'll I'll let you kind of present a case, Ray, and then we'll we'll see what we can do with it. Sure, Mark. During the sports medicine conference, your annual medicine conference that I did the PBL, I presented a 15-year-old patient who was a Caucasian female competitive soccer player who presented to the group's office with difficulty breathing and wheezing occurring during her soccer games for the past few months. And her primary care physician had recently put her on a combination medium-dose inhaled corticosteroid with a long-acting beta agonist one puff twice daily, along with albuterol, a trial and albuterol rescue inhaler, used two puffs prior to exercise, but none of this helped. And so despite the inhalers not helping her, she was referred for evaluation. Both of her parents who came with her were very concerned that this problem would affect her ability to be recruited for a college soccer scholarship. But you could see there was a little social interactions going on with her parents that maybe were putting a little pressure on her. And they said she was a very well-adjusted teenager who was A-plus student, great athlete, overachiever. But her past medical history was unremarkable. Review of systems, family history, unremarkable for any asthma or atopy. And her physical exam was totally normal. With that in mind, it presented a bit of a dilemma in that she appeared to have difficult exercise-induced asthma, which was what she was billed as having. And it was for me or for the participants of a PBL to try to figure out, well, what's the differential diagnosis here? What, what could be going on? The group discussed that, well, yeah, it could be just difficult to control exercise-induced asthma. And maybe she's just not using her inhalers properly, which is not an uncommon thing. It could be, as you mentioned earlier, deconditioning, that maybe she just hadn't gotten back into good shape. It could have been vocal cord dysfunction or multiple names that have been used to describe areas of the vocal cords where there's paradoxical motion and closing on inspiration. It could be softening of the trachea or the uh, larynx, laryngo or tracheomalacia. It could be gastroesophageal reflux or laryngeal reflux of, of acid and non-acid up into the larynx. It could be exercise-induced anaphylaxis. And it could be restrictive lung disease. It could be that she was a little bit obese, which was pushing on her diaphragm and closing, making her volume of her air in her lungs less. Or it could have been an interstitial lung disease, which is really rare in teenagers, but it's always possible without a chest X-ray. And last but not least, it certainly could be a cardiac origin. And that was brought up in the group discussion the other day as a possibility, but not common in a 15-year-old. After this was discussed in the group kind of came to some conclusions about what they wanted to order. We gave them what this actual patient had, which was normal pulmonary function testing, normal flow volume loops, both inspiratory and expiratory, and a chest x-ray that was totally normal. They didn't show any pulmonary or cardiac abnormalities. Again, at that point, we were left with, well, what else could or should be done? Hey, Ray. Yes. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, and I think this may be a helpful exercise a little bit when we're thinking about this particular case and we're we're talking about that differential because when I have learners in my office, we try and stratify a little bit what seems to be highest, what would be highest on the list Mm because obviously we always have the red herrings. And this is part for my own education too. And I'm far removed from my general pediatrics training 
you know, I always thought of things like tracheomalacia or lingeromalacia were things that would be more commonly affecting our younger patients and not necessarily so much in our teenagers. But maybe you can clarify that for me. Is that still something that we need to be thinking about in the the teenager with those concerns? It's always something in your differential diagnosis. It's very uncommon, but so is cardiac. And so are a lot of these things by sure. far and away. The most common would be deconditioning, exercise-induced asthma, or vocal cord dysfunction by far and away. And that leads to a question that I often ask, which is, are there any key questions in the history that would be excellent to try to differentiate between what you're dealing with. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Ray Davis, working through the athlete with trouble breathing. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, (laughs) you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Yeah. And this was one of those that the question got brought up or someone suggested of asking the history, which I think is a, is a great history mm-hmm. question is, do you have trouble with getting air in or getting air out? And what is your feeling with that? And, and there was, was a debate back and, and forth. It was interesting. There was a debate back and forth, which I love during problem-based learning because then yep. you get more people involved and more people arguing their points of view. And so someone said, well, with asthma, it should be more difficulty getting air in rather than getting air out on exhalation. And someone then said, no, it's just the opposite. Vocal cord dysfunction would be trouble getting air in, and asthma would be trouble getting air out. And it turns out that asthma is usually associated with expiratory wheezing on exhaling. And asthmatics typically don't complain of trouble getting air in. But with paradoxical vocal cord dysfunction, the problem is that the vocal cords do close on inspiration And when that happens, patients often panic, they hyperventilate, and it it slows them down. What's the onset of symptoms? And there's a fairly good differentiating factor with 
exercise-induced asthma, typically in most asthmatics, takes five to 10 minutes of pretty vigorous exercise. And then especially when they slow down or stop, they really have trouble exhaling and get expiratory wheezes. With focal cord dysfunction, which is actually somewhat of a anxiety reaction or performance anxiety reaction in overachievers who are trying too hard to be better than they maybe can even be at their sport and often playing with higher level athletes or older kids than them. They just go into a nervous overdrive where their nerves are going crazy and their vocal cords close when they should be opening. And that happens usually within a minute of getting out on a basketball court or a soccer field. It happens right away. And that is often a differentiating factor by history. Obviously, you've seen this. I've, I've seen this personally as well. And athletes, when they're dealing with this, it's very striking, the difference as far as how people will look. I mean, asthmatics, if they're not well controlled, they're going to struggle with breathing and it's going to look odd. But boy, the people who have vocal cord dysfunction, they look like they are on death's doorstep because yeah. they are so panicked and they they just look bad. They look like a fish um, out of water. They look like yeah. a fish out of water gasping to yep. get air in. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, it's it's very striking and it's a big, big difference. And even the the noisiness of it is is different. Mm-hmm. And that's why I try and demonstrate I have that <laughs> the benefit. I'm sure you could probably do it too, but making a sound of a wheeze so they mm-hmm. kind of get an idea of what mm-hmm. that should sound like and just doing the <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. And does it sound like that when you're doing it, which it doesn't usually sound like that with vocal cord dysfunction. Right, it's very right, that gasping right. and panicky and right. very loud, like <gasps> like they're yeah. gulping kind yes. of thing. Yeah. That's always helpful when you're kind of looking at those things and talking about those. So I think those are purely some key questions there for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, we can talk about kind of the workup next. So you mentioned kind of some of the tests that were normal. Yeah. But, you know, so, if you saw so, this person in your office, kind of what, what would you do? Most commonly, the gold standard has always been considered an exercise challenge test. Having an otolaryngologist or someone capable of doing nasopharyngoscopy at the end of when they get off the treadmill, if they're hyperventilating and trying to see whether they have paradoxical vocal cord dysfunction. During that, a pulmonary function test can be done before and every five minutes to 10 minutes after to see if the lung function drops, if it's exercise-induced asthma. Sometimes a methicoline challenge test can be done by itself as a separate test to see whether or not the patient actually has asthma because methicoline induces bronchospasm in the vast majority of patients with asthma if they have normal lung function at rest. And yet in vocal cord dysfunction, oftentimes all these tests will be normal because you can't simulate the stress and the anxiety that comes on from their competitive sport. And with my swimmer that I published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in 2007 with the video clip that showed when she swam, it happened. It didn't happen when she ran fast on the treadmill and we scoped her. And so that was why the video clip was so valuable to have for people to see online and and have access to that and show their patients, which I show my patients that video quite frequently. Well, that's a nice thing about having smartphones and having that access to stuff right there. I mean, everybody basically has a video camera Mm -hmm. accessible to them at all times for the most part. It's really easy to get that video compared to when when you had the video that you published. You know, people have to be having their video recorder out their camcorder and taking the video yeah. there and then processing it. But we will, we will make sure to have a link to that 
particular article so people can look at that video and see that there's some uniqueness about that particular article and just kind of tell our listeners about it. Back in 1983, a former fellow from the National Jewish Hospital, Kent Christopher, published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that basically showed five different cases of what was severe uncontrolled asthma turned out to be all cases of vocal cord dysfunction. And it really brought to light to most allergists and pulmonologists the fact that we need to be not missing these types of cases and asking the right questions in the history and when necessary, scoping these patients, if it is helpful. When I saw a case like this, who was a swimmer in 1984, I said to the dad, after we did all these tests, gee, I think she's got vocal cord dysfunction and I think I need to refer her to a speech therapist, but none of the tests are abnormal. And one of the tests we didn't mention is a flow volume loop. Inspiratory, expiratory flow volume loop can sometimes demonstrate clipping or flattening of the inspiratory loop, suggesting the vocal cords are closing. But her tests were all normal and the scoping was all normal. I said to the dad, gosh, if I could just see her swimming at the time, maybe I could figure out what this is. And he says, great, I have a copy of a videotape I took on my big camcorder from it looked like at the time, one of these camcorders <laughs> that the Channel 5 News carries. Yep. And of course, this was in the early 80s. That's all we had. We didn't have cell phones that would record. And he brings me this videotape and I popped it in my VCR and I go, OMG. I probably didn't say OMG back then, but sure. I said something like that when I <laughs> saw her come out of the water, gasping like a fish out of water. And it's really interesting. She went to uh, Children's Hospital to see one of the best speech therapists I've ever worked with, who's been there for 30 plus years. And after one visit, she learned how to control the spasms in her vocal cords by practicing muscle relaxation and learned how to breathe. She went on to win a four-year scholarship to swimming at Georgetown University and went on to be a psychologist at Harvard University and learned how to help other people with stress and anxiety. And I had to track her down to get proof that we could uh, use her likeness or video clip, but she was such, such a sweetheart to allow us to use it for teaching purposes. You mentioned kind of scoping. So I'm kind of curious, you know, if you have a patient now that you see in your office and you have a high clinical suspicion, how often are you actually having that person get scoped or are you scoping them? I talk to the parents again. I very, I feel very strongly, Mark, about a shared decision-making discussion. And I tell them, you know, it could be a tumor. It could be something else, a paralyzed vocal cord. It could be any number of things, but I'm pretty convinced based on the history of it only happens when he or she is out on the basketball court or the soccer field within a minute or two. The patient may already have some anxiety or depression and then pushes him or herself so hard and is a type A personality overachiever. Stereotypically, it tends to be more in teenage girls than than the boys. But if it's pretty stereotypical, I say, well, we can easily get you scoped and have that checked, or we can send you to the speech therapist and see if this helps. And they may or may not recommend a psychologist to work with her to see whether that would be of some benefit as well. It's really, I try to individualize it and I try to involve the patients and the parents in making the decision how far to go with with any additional testing. So if we're talking about, say, there's a primary care physician who's been managing someone's asthma, quote unquote asthma, for a while, and they've got their bag full of inhalers, none of those things are helping. 
when do you feel like it's appropriate for a primary care physician or maybe even some of our athletic trainers who listen to this podcast as well, if they're seeing a kid who's struggling with trouble breathing, when should they be referring to someone like yourself? I think that's the point. I mean, if the simple things take care of it, they don't need to see a specialist. But if the simple things don't, and there's some frustration level that they're perceiving as a coach or athletic trainer, or even the parents who may be listening to this, I think that's the point at which you seek care from somebody who specializes in this kind of thing and see where you go from there. It's just like anything else. When you reach a point where people are frustrated and you're not getting successful, you need to reach out and say, well, let's try to get some success another way. You know, you mentioned and you kind of alluded to the speech therapy psychology. You know, is that is that our main treatment option that we have for vocal cord dysfunction? Yes, that's the only effective treatment, Mark, because really medications just don't do much good in someone who maybe is extremely stressed or anxious and and needs to see a psychiatrist, they may need to have some further treatment with medication, but that's not going to totally help. Practice exercising your vocal cords to relax and your neck muscles to relax and doing some diaphragmatic breathing rather than just breathing from your upper level of your chest and hyperventilating like many people do when they're stressed and anxious and tense. A qualified speech therapist is the most effective route to go when this is suspected. You alluded to different names for this condition. I've seen the term paradoxical vocal cord motion mm-hmm. uh, as another option for it. Do you have a preference? Do you like? I mean, I just like vocal cord dysfunction because it just rolls off the tongue easier than some of these other things. But I, I, I've read so many articles, and you know, to me, VCD, uh, vocal yeah. cord dysfunction, is the one that's universally understood. And all these other long terms, I think, just just cause more confusion. Before we conclude our podcast, we like to have something we call the pearl of the podcast. It's time for you as our guest to give the listeners a helpful nugget of information. Obviously, hopefully most of the podcast is helpful nuggets for them, but something you may want them to be the key thing that they remember about either this case or just in general. I would say what we talked about earlier, Mark, a patient with suspected exercise-induced asthma who is a teenage especially girl, but a teenager who is a type A personality, A plus student, and admits, if you ask, that they're having trouble getting air in rather than getting air out or points to their throat, I think you have to strongly think about vocal cord dysfunction at that point and realize the inhalers are just not doing the job because they're not going to. Awesome. And you know, as we we talked about during our sports medicine conference this past weekend that we were participating in, it's really one of those things that it is something that many of us have probably seen, but we just didn't have the knowledge to know what it was when it was sitting in front of us and just assuming it may be asthma. I'd really like to thank Dr. Ray Davis for his time today and shedding a little light on something that many of us, like I said, have seen, but probably uh, not recognize that it's there. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. We appreciate your five-star feedback. You can follow us on Twitter at Peds Sports Pod or on Facebook. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.